I'm Rebecca Achenga Julia Bushell, and I was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. I'm a former British champion and world number one, but I quit the sport just before the 2012 Olympic Games at just 17. I'll be navigating you through the waters of my swimming world, as I remember it and as it exists now. In hosting this series, I'll also tell you more about my story whilst we explore a question I've often been asked. Why do we swim? Welcome to Physical Capital, a series centered around the human relationship with swimming. What draws us to it? How do we use it? What do we gain from it? And what can it take from us? We'll be looking at swimming from multiple angles to help paint a complete picture of the sport. We're going to be exploring swimming through the prism of physical capital, discussing the physical attributes that can give you an advantage in the water and how they've been used to achieve greatness, but also how they can be affected and influenced by politics, geography, and the unequal distribution of resources. But most importantly, we'll be speaking to swimmers, from those that push themselves to their limits in the swimming pool and in open water, to those that swim for fun and for pleasure, and those who document its history. Swimming as a sport is truly international. As we heard in the last episode, swimmers and teams from all over the world compete against each other. During my time in the sport, I competed for both Kenya and later Great Britain and I swam against incredible athletes from Senegal to South Africa, Tunisia, Japan, Canada, the world over, and at swimming competitions all over the world too. But in order to compete at the highest level, athletes need the right resources. And the one thing about resources the world over is that they are not equally distributed in all areas of life, swimming being no exception. And so the question really is, how can a swimmer's geographic location affect how far they can progress in the sport? In this episode, we're going to try to answer this question by looking at who is in charge of the sport, in what ways it's connected to the corporate world, and what happens to the money involved. How does this create inequality that results in different outcomes for different athletes? And we're going to be speaking to Indian Olympic swimmer Shika Tandon about her experiences getting into the sport and how things have changed for Indian swimmers over the past 20 years. Growing up and learning to swim in Kenya, I couldn't have imagined the facilities that awaited me in the UK when I came over at the age of 13. The pools were outdoor, old, hot concrete stands and stadiums, and oftentimes, there wasn't enough chlorine. The same was true to a certain extent in South Africa, where I lived and swam from the ages of 10 to 13. The facilities were better, but they still couldn't compare to the places I competed in Great Britain. To understand how resources are distributed across the world, I think it's important to better understand who it is that's distributing those resources. We spoke a little bit about aqua in the previous episode, but let's get some insight into World Aquatics, who they are and what they do. To help us answer this, 
we welcome back Nick Hope to the podcast. So my name's Nick Hope. I have covered the Olympic and Paralympic as well as the Commonwealth Games sports movement and attended every game since 2008, summer and winter. So the international governing body for the aquatic sports, now known as World Aquatics or Aqua for short, essentially are the ones who are ultimately responsible for the vast majority of important decisions within the sport. So they will help decide Olympic qualification places and that pathway through to the next games. But they will also help decide the rules for club swimmers and even which hats, goggles, suits, kit is appropriate and acceptable and legal for competition. So their role is all-powerful and all-consuming, which is important because you need somebody to ultimately run the sport. And they've been through quite a few changes in recent years. So they've had a, a new president who's come in and they have tried to change the fundamentals of the sport. That was part of why they rebranded from being FINA through to being World Aquatics. More about the world, changing that traditional language from French to English to be more sort of appealing globally, but also to have that connection to all of the different communities within the swimming world and to try and show that this is a sport for all, that they support all of the different continents and they're not just about the elite. So obviously they have programs that are heavily invested in learn to swim. So this is swimming as a survival life skill as well. So rather than just thinking about who's going to be smashing the world records, winning those gold medals, who in those communities that are surrounded by water ultimately need the facilities and the knowledge to help them with learn a valuable life skill. So it's an international governing body which is changing with time and hopefully represents the world now as opposed to just the elite. It sounds like in recent years, Moving from FINA to Aqua, they've started to make more of an effort to be inclusive, and from the sounds of it, more fair in the way they distribute the resources globally. That all sounds pretty positive. It does feel like a really bold, positive future. There are always going to be question marks over decisions that are made, because when you are making huge sweeping rule changes or regulation revisions, it's not going to be to everyone's liking. It is impossible to keep all of those people from all of those nations happy. So people are always going to challenge. But that is important. I think the most vital change there has been in many ways is that ability to challenge the leadership on decisions that have been made and that it is not this, we can't say anything because we're scared of what the repercussions would be. And in previous generations, I think there has been a little bit of that. Even recently at the World Championships where they had, this is World Aquatics, had their annual congress there were nations who openly stood up against some of the proposals and the changes that World Aquatics were wanting to put through. Ultimately, they were passed because it is done by vote of the greatest number will go through. Obviously, you vote for, vote, vote against. But it's important that those countries felt comfortable enough to say, we don't agree with this or we want more information without fearing they would then be ostracised further down the line. And that's a big change, I would say. A lot of positive change, but we still have a long way to go to making sure all nations are given equal chances to succeed. I think we need to break this down a little more. And so let's start with the obvious question. What influences who can succeed in swimming? Within the world of swimming, there are so many factors which can influence who is ultimately going to be able to get to the top. Obviously, a big one is the access to finances and resources, which can ultimately make the, ac the accessibility to facilities easier if you have an athlete who is funded 
are, has, a, has a big sponsor or receives funding from the government, that will all help take the pressure off them so that they don't have to worry about getting a part-time job or even a full-time job at the same time. And they can therefore maximise their ability to train and then recover and train again, etc. If you're then having to run off to an office or a cafe, a pizza delivery, you know, I've known many uh, athletes over the years who've had to try and balance that. The availability of finance is unfortunately for the nations that and athletes that don't have it is a huge part but it should it's not the only part as i said the ability to analyze your performances to watch back to look at what the best in the sport are currently doing it and being able to refine it those are all key factors to being able to get to the top and obviously having a support structure and a pathway having role models from previous generations who've done it so that your athletes are able to see that it's possible, that they're not always the first person that's doing it, because it is so much more difficult to go first. If you've had someone who's trodden that path before, there is a pathway to follow, there is an inspiration to follow, and there is also usually the support structure because the wider machine will know what's needed to support an elite athlete and help them reach their potential. Okay, so there are a couple of barriers there. Privilege or financial capital, being in the position to not need a job along with training. And role models, and we talked about this with Cullen, if you don't see people like you competing, are you less likely to compete? But even if you have the privilege or the financial capital, and you can see those role models on poolside, what happens when it comes to the facilities? It's so difficult right now with what the world is going through from an economic point of view to improve and even maintain the current level of facilities that there are. We see it here in the UK, and it is replicated across Europe and different parts of the world, where 50-metre and even 25-metre pools are being closed because they're too expensive to run. Many of these have relied on subsidies from the government for many, many years because they're not profit-making. However, I think what has rightly been pointed out by you know many campaigners and even athletes such as uh, Duncan Scott, Great Britain Olympic champion, is that you need to look at the long term. If you support and maintain these facilities and even grow them, build new ones, it ultimately has a massive benefit on your population because it helps keep them healthy. It helps keep them out of hospital. So yes, on a paper, that might be costing you X amount of money a year to maintain or to build, but it's stopping the NHS or your health service being overwhelmed. That is definitely something that needs to be looked at over the coming years. What I would say from an international perspective. We've mentioned about how the superpowers of the sport obviously have the resources to continue funding the youngsters that are coming through. World Aquatics have been quite innovative with some of their policies in recent years. So they have a scholarship which is basically targeted at trying to find athletes from non-traditional swimming superpower nations and to give them funding, to give them support, to give them the option to go and train in one of their specialist centres, of which there are several around the world which will then help them sort of reach the next level. So they would be able to go, for example, if you're in Asia, there is one in Thailand. Uh, there's ones in the Middle East, South America. World Aquatics' new facility that they will build, and their headquarters are going to relocate from Switzerland to uh, Budapest, Hungary, um, in the next few years. Their move behind that is to create a new centre of excellence there, which again will allow people from around the continents, and all the ones that I've mentioned, to come to this centre of excellence and gain the insight, the feedback, the science and data, the nutritional advice that will help them raise their game. And that is also something that will, it's not just for the athlete, that is to bring their coaches in and their support staff so that that information is 
then able to go back to that country and go out to the swimming groups and the communities and that it can actually make a genuine difference for the generations that are coming through. So changes are being made. Could more be done? More can always be done. But at least there is the acknowledgement that traditionally some nations have been left behind and that it is important for a global sport to be truly global and for everybody and to help raise the game ultimately across the world by helping those who are struggling the most reach an acceptable level and to move that onto the absolute elite level. It sounds like progress is being made, but there's still a lot more to be done to level the playing field. To do this, more needs to be invested into facilities, and none of that can happen without the money to do so. But where does that money come from? It's not always obvious, but does swimming have links to the corporate world? For an event to run, for an organisation to be successful and sustainable, it needs to have an income. And that obviously taps into the commercial and corporate world. World Aquatics have, you know, relationships with many different brands. That is fundamental, ultimately, to the success of the sport, because they need to have those relationships with the brands to bring in the finances to stage the events that they do around the world. So, yes, it has a massive corporate uh, presence. And as one of the biggest Olympic sports up there with, you know, if you think athletics, track and field, that is, would be the number one sport. You've then got swimming, you've then got cycling. It's, a, it's an A-list sport, so it, it, it's understandable that it has that corporate connection, which it obviously needs to maintain and get right. Okay, so that's some of the ways which Aqua makes money to function. But who is actually profiting from swimming? Well, I think the International Federation and the International Olympic Committee make money through their broadcasting deals and through their commercial deals. I think traditionally what a big argument has been within not just the swimming community but all sports that fall under the Olympic umbrella and um, is that that money hasn't been distributed as well as it could be. But I think that is changing, as I said, from a transparency point of view, simply to have those scholarships available, to have those centres of excellence set up around the world suggests that there is a better spread of the financial resources and the income that is coming into the very top. Again, there will always be questions about whether more investment could be made. I suppose the flip argument would be, let's take the Commonwealth Games right now. It is going through a real crisis where you have the hosts for 2026 have pulled out and now no one really showing an interest in 2030. So the Commonwealth Games Federation are very much drawing on their reserves of funding that they built up over a number of years to keep sustained, to keep running at this point in time. The IOC, so that's the International Olympic Committee, World Aquatics, always want to be able to keep a buffer so that if things do go wrong, much like they did in the pandemic where all of these events were cancelled, had to be postponed, contracts had to be renegotiated, ripped up, and a huge amount of money was lost for so many, that they have some way of safeguarding them. I think, obviously, the argument counter to that is that maybe many of these organizations already have enough funds, but then who decides that? I think the most important thing is that you see that there are changes happening that mean there are opportunities for those who don't have access to those funds and resources to still gain access to elite training facilities and information in a way that they weren't able to in previous generations. And I have some insight into this. But what about the athletes? How do they make money? Making money in swimming traditionally is tough. As any athlete will tell you, you don't go into it to get rich because traditionally you cannot. Um, there will be a few of the, you know, 
hyper-elite multiple Olympic champions who can make a serious income from it. And they might have, you know, a sponsorship deal with someone like Omega and be able to make quite a significant amount of money. Um, but traditionally, what you're looking at in, in many nations, if you're fortunate enough to have a system that is supported by your government, there will be funding that comes through that pathway. So, for example, in the UK, which is the, the easiest way to look at it, there is a combination of government funding and the money that comes from the national lottery that the public will spend that is split to create athlete personal allowances, APAs. And based on your level of medal winning potential, you will be given a certain um, wage, as it were to support you inside and outside of the sport through your program. Now, this is means tested. So, for example, if you are a Tom Daly or an Adam Peaty and you start to earn megabucks, that APA will be reduced and perhaps even, even taken away. But you will still have, obviously, the income from the sponsors, which you've gained from your performances in the pool. You will still have access to an elite training program, which you don't pay for, that is provided and you're allowed access to it because of your ability. So many nations do have a system in place like that. Others will have to rely on personal sponsors to help them travel, to help them enter competitions because competitions have entry fees and equally will have to sometimes pick up part-time work, particularly if you're an athlete who's had a bad year. Now, there are improvements to sort of support athletes through transitions or even those who've maybe gone away, they've had an injury or they've had a baby, for example. There will be now funding in place to support you for a number of years rather than just dropping off because of one year where you didn't hit your performance targets, for example, which is improving and that is helping people. But there are still those out there who have to go off and get a job and then have got on top of that to try and get back to the top despite the increased demands on them. It is so different for so many different athletes from across the world. And there is, as I was mentioning before, World Aquatics, they do have a scholarship program where they will select a certain number of athletes across a four-year period and be able to give them support and through their national federation as well to be able to travel to events to get to the elite training centers in different parts of the world. As it is across so many sports, there is funding for those at the top, but it's very much a chicken and egg situation for so many. A lot of swimmers from across the world aim to go to the US for university because you can get a full scholarship and compete in the NCAA. This is a competition that runs all across your college years and the facilities, coaches and training programs in the US are second to none. This was definitely something that was on my horizon, but the whole thing is predicated on your not being pro. This means that you can't get paid for swimming in any professional capacity until you go to university. It's a complicated situation because suits cost money, travel costs money, kit costs money, and oftentimes when you're on a national team, some of that stuff is funded and paid for, but not all of it. Certainly when I swam for Kenya, my parents covered a lot of my costs. And I was fortunate enough that they were able to do so. But that's certainly not everyone's reality. It was also tough swimming for Great Britain and trying to stay amateur because, of course, the better I got, especially when I was about 15, 16 and I'd just won British championships, there were a handful of sponsorship deals and opportunities to really be able to fund the sport in a way that I hadn't before. But, as with all things, the cost-benefit analysis and the mounting uni fees in front of me made that feel like an impossible option. And unfortunately, I quit the sport before I could benefit from that. 
But certainly, your socioeconomic background and your global location can definitely affect how far you can progress in the sport of swimming. Where you're from, what you have access to, can be fundamental to ultimately what you're able to achieve. This comes down to, on the one hand, yes, it's the resources and it's the access, but it's also down to the pathways and the role models that will also be available to you or not available to you, depending on where in the world you come from. You know, I'm a strong believer and many athletes will be as well in, in the phrase, you need to see it to be it. And if that role model isn't there, if you can't see anyone who looks like you or has anything that you can relate to, achieving at the very top level, it becomes that much more difficult to think that your dream could become reality or even have that dream in the first instance. And that can be a huge barrier to obviously reaching the very top of your sport and perhaps reaching the potential that you don't even know you have locked inside you. It's fundamental that these gaps, these holes, these challenges are identified and the excess resources that there are at the top are utilised to make sure that this becomes a truly global sport where people from all of the different continents, different regions of the world still have that opportunity to achieve their potential. Swimming is such an individual sport and it's very easy to think that your situation and your experience in the pool is unique. But much like Nick illustrates, these barriers to entry and hurdles exist everywhere. Interestingly enough, there's someone whose story is very similar to mine. And it starts in a very similar way too. My name is Shikha Tandon and I'm an Olympian swimmer from India. I grew up in India and currently live in the Bay Area in California. So I started swimming when I was eight years old. It was not by choice. My younger brother had severe asthma at the time and the doctor recommended that he be taken to the pool to help his lung capacity. Just being eight at the time, my mom took me as well and one thing led to the other and I started enjoying swimming. Won my first national medal when I was nine. And honestly, from then it was no, no looking back and finally made it to the Olympics when I was 19. You know, as a kid, I was always athletic. I loved being outside. I loved running around. I actually wanted to be a runner. And so sport and activity was, you know, not new to me. And I think that played a bit of a part in terms of, you know, how quickly I caught on to swimming and how quickly I was able to learn. And like I said, I really started enjoying it. Once I started enjoying it, every day was making exponential gains as far as the sport goes. Shika and I, as children, don't sound too different. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I was also that same child, always running around with too much energy to burn. I know very little about swimming in India, and I was curious to hear what it was like for her when she entered the sport. The city that I grew up in, Bangalore, at the time was actually one of the better cities in terms of access to you know, swimming specifically and infrastructure for swimming. And it also just happened, I think, right place, right time, where the coach that I trained with for you know significant part of my career, he had just moved back to India from the US and opened up his own academy there. And so I was able to join that. So in terms of access, I think I was probably in the best city in India for you know competitive swimming. That definitely really, really helped my career. And so from the sounds of things, again, not too dissimilar to my own story, fortunate enough to have access to facilities and good coaches to help her physically flourish. This certainly wasn't the same for everyone in Kenya where I grew up. And I'm guessing this wasn't the experience of everyone learning to swim in the rest of India either. 
So at the time, there were just very, very few competitive programs for swimming, especially at the elite level. Both of them happened to be in Bangalore and two of the best coaches in India happened to be in Bangalore. So a lot of swimmers who wanted to pursue competitive swimming would actually travel down to Bangalore just so that they could have access to these coaches and facilities. In terms of, you know, coaches who had the knowledge to, you know, get swimmers from the junior to the senior level all the way to the international standards, that was definitely something that was lacking at the time. This is something I know really well. People relocating to get closer to places they could train. I moved from Kenya to the UK to do just that. And in the UK, we are so lucky to have an abundance of quality swimming pools, swim teams and facilities. This is something that's definitely progressed at a dramatically quick rate here in the UK. I wondered whether swimming had changed much in India over the last 20 years since Shika has left the sport. Yeah, it's definitely changed quite a bit. You know, you have more athletes coming into the sport, not just from a competitive standpoint, but just from a life skill development standpoint in terms of, you know, access to facilities. There are many more swimming pools, not just in Bangalore, but throughout the country. There are also coaches that are coming in. Former athletes, former swimmers are now, you know, becoming coaches themselves. So I think in general, it's a lot different and a lot better than it was 20 years ago. People are recognizing, you know, swimming as one of those unique sports where which is really a life skill first. And so that is bringing more people to the pool, not just kids, but even parents and adults are really now learning to swim at an age which otherwise they wouldn't have maybe 20 years ago. And a lot of them are doing that because they understand how unique the sport of swimming is. In terms of access to education for the coaches, support staff, we still are a few years behind the rest of the world. So I think access to that to get everyone to those global standards would definitely help in terms of encouraging student athletes to compete beyond high school. I think if we can have a better setup there, it would definitely help in terms of longevity of competitive careers. From everyone I speak to, the sentiment remains the same. We're on the way to swimming becoming more inclusive globally, but there's still a huge amount of work to be done. There's definitely more that could be done, you know, as with everything else, right? There's always room for improvement. And I think, you know, access to facilities, there are definitely some cities, even within countries that have uh, access to better infrastructure, better swimming pools, more swimming pools. There are some countries where, you know, they don't have, an, for example, an Olympic sized swimming pool. So those are all things that play into, you know, the even distribution across the world or even within countries or cities. And even things like weather and climate, those play a huge role in terms of competitive swimming and the ability to train year-round. There are some cities, even in the US, there are some cities and some states where you can be outdoors training through the year and there are some where you can't. And even in terms of learning to swim, right, it's it's one of those sports where the barrier to entry is is still significant, right? You have to pay for access to a training facility, you have to pay for access to swimming equipment. It's not something like running, you know, where you can just go out and start or like soccer where you just need a ball. There is definitely a commitment from everyone involved. And in terms of affordability and, you know, even just to learn to swim, it's not something you can just go and do by yourself. You still have to engage with a coach, with a trainer. And so access to these facilities and programs from an affordability standpoint also plays a huge role in terms of, you know, that distribution of resources. Resource allocation is inherently political, and many believe that politics has no place in sport. My experience of the politics of my body, not just 
as a black athlete, but also as a young woman, shaped the way that I experienced swimming, especially in the latter stages of my career. On the next episode of the podcast, we're going to be discussing the intersection between race and swimming, exploring the myth that black people can't swim, and looking at where it came from and how it has plagued generations of people, but also how it's slowly being squashed. Oh my God, I had one woman one time tell me that a swimming teacher told her that she couldn't swim because black people had like heavy bottom and hips and they sink in the water. She was like, I didn't really believe it. So I got in and taught myself to swim and I was like, good for you. Like that's, I'm so happy to hear that. But then for every person that they didn't believe it and they went and taught themselves to swim, there'll be three or four people who do believe it. Why wouldn't you believe the swimming teacher? You know, they're the person in the institution, they understand what's happening. And you probably think, okay, it's not for me. I'll just stay away from water. We want to stop that. We want to combat those issues, get education and knowledge in and get black people swimming and Asian people and feeling comfortable in the water.